So we're in Romans. The first 11 chapters, think about this. There's so much truth which the Lord has for us that it took someone as astute as Paul 11 chapters to tell us about it. That's what happened. Romans chapter 1 to 11, truth. If you read it, you will find that nothing is required of us but to accept it. So Paul in 11 chapters says, sit still, be quiet, take a break, and I will tell you what's already true. And he spoke about the very sad truth of our sin nature, and then he spoke about the very glorious truth about God's response to it. It's a grace response. In essence, that's what he's been speaking about. And lest any people group think they don't fit in, either to the sin problem or the grace solution, Paul took a lot of time to speak about Jews and Gentiles and the differences and what they have in common and all this kind of stuff. But the point is, all have sinned and all need a Savior. And Paul says, and we have such a one. And so he speaks about the fact that there's no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he speaks about the fact that God will never leave us. He speaks about the fact that nothing could separate us from his love. And all of these glorious truths took 11 chapters to declare them to us. And now in chapter 12 and on for the rest of Romans, he says, I've told you what's true. Now I'm going to tell you what you are to do. You, 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 you can't just know what's true and not respond. So chapters 12 through 16 are Paul's exhortation about how we are to respond to what's already true of us. It's good that way. You see, if Paul started with chapter 12, think about it. If chapter 12 came first, 12 through 16, and then 1 to 11, we would be left with the burden of doing a whole bunch of stuff in order to get God to accept us, pardon us, forgive us, and be gracious to us. That would be a terrible order. That's the order of most religions. Did you know that? The stuff you are required to do comes first, and you must do those things as the prerequisite for getting a good response from God. But the biblical account is entirely different. It reverses things. It starts with the truth of unmerited favor by Almighty God, and it says the most powerful motivation now left to you to do that which is pleasing to him is not because you have to, but because you want to. You want to say things. Thank you to the God who, before you had anything good to say or offer, sent his own son to suffer and die for you and for me. So first comes chapters 1 to 11, and now chapter 12 and on. The last time we were together, this thing is sliding. Do you notice that? Is it just, I'm going to pull it back here just a little, little bit. Oh, there, there you go, there you go. I thought it was me for, for a second, but it's, it's, it's this. I have no idea where I was. Oh, yeah, we, 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 cut, we started chapter 12 and did verse 1 some time ago, and I wanted to pick up the pace tonight, but I failed miserably. Because when you take a look at verse 2, you'll see how loaded it is with meat. In fact, why don't we do that? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That's all we'll look at tonight. There's just a lot of words in it, a lot of good stuff that we ought to digest. Here's how it begins and do not, Paul is speaking to believers, and do not be conformed to this world. 
You know why he said that? Because we could be. (laughs) That's why he said it. He said we're at risk. He said we're living in a dangerous neighborhood. It's the world. And that dangerous neighborhood has a way of putting such pressure on us that we get squeezed into its own value system, worldview, mindset. Paul says here, look, look, I've told you what's true. Now do this. Don't let the world do that to you. Do not be conformed to the uh, ways and uh, thinking of the world. Don't let it resist it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its way of thinking. By the way, you see the word world? It, it, in this context, it's actually the word age. Don't let the time in which you live, that's what Paul is saying, don't let the contemporary realities of the day, the society in which you find yourself immersed in, don't let that age affect you. Don't let it be the standard, the model for your behavior. For it's a bad model. In fact, let the biblical record be the model and standard for your behavior as redeemed ones. So he said, don't, don't be conformed to this age, to this world. Don't accept its values. Do you know what the world values? It could get complicated, but let me just simplify. I, I think the number one thing the world or this day, this age values is autonomy from God. Autonomy means independence. The attitude of the day is to work hard at being independent of God. In other words, to make him superfluous. If you have to acknowledge his existence, okay, fine. But that's the extent of it. So the world is on a quest, think about it, to have its needs satisfied apart from the need meter. So the the world wants joy, who doesn't, and peace Visualize world peace. You know, you see all this kind of stuff. Peace signs. The world wants peace conventions, conferences, peace ambassadors. The world wants joy and peace and love, but it wants it without having to make recourse to the source of it all. Have you heard of the fruit of the Spirit of God? Have you ever heard that? If you haven't, it's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. What does that mean? The fruit of the Holy Spirit means the stuff that emanates from Almighty God. And in that Galatians text, it says the fruit of the Spirit is, you know, this love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are what the world is after good things, but they don't want to be beholden to God in order to lay hold of these things. If the world can succeed independent of God, if the world can succeed in having this experience apart from him, then who needs him? That's the value of the day. A kind of token response to God, that kind of thing, but no real yieldedness or submission to him. And Paul says, do not 
yield to that way of thinking. Paul says, you can't even take the next breath apart from Almighty God. You can't make a go at peace and love and joy and self-control. You can't break unwanted patterns of behavior without his intervention. No, autonomy from God is what the world values, but you should not You should cling to him for blessing. You should rejoice in the fact that you are aware of the fact that you're becoming increasingly dependent on him. You can't take a step without him. Paul says, don't be conformed, therefore, to the world's way of thinking. But here's the deal. It's not just that the age in which we live, the society, um, wants us to make a go of life without God. Uh, uh, misery loves company. So that kind of uh, miserable independence from God seeks followers. Now look, if you're someone who is not conforming to the world's value system, autonomy from God, if you're someone yielding to the lordship of almighty God, you will be despised, hated, maybe even persecuted. You just have to know that. The world system wants not only to declare independence from God, but it wants to mandate that each member of society sign up. So when the Lord Jesus himself and surely his followers thereafter say, oh no, we will bend, bow before almighty God. We will consider what he wants us to do. We will seek his will. We will express proudly our, our dependence on him. When you do that, I'm, I'm telling you, the world will respond. I was just reading a statistic by an independent nonprofit organization surveyed last year and determined at least 100 million Christians were severely persecuted. I don't mean someone saying something insulting to you. I mean either uh, forced out of their home, uh, experiencing loss of job, or even loss of life. And of course, the countries in which more persecution of Christians takes place than any others, maybe you can guess, are Muslim-dominated countries. Muslim-dominated, this is not any polemic uh, on my part, I'm just telling you the facts. Most Muslim-dominated countries are the ones that have the greatest prevalence of persecution of Christians. So, well, why is that? Because it's part of the world system, and that's what Paul tells us, do not conform to it. The world is on a quest to remove God from the formula of life. If it can succeed at it, then we don't need a savior. We can save ourselves. You see, that's what's, that's what's sort of going on. And so in response, Paul says, don't let it happen. Fight it. Resist. Do not be conformed to this world. You know, we're not supposed to fit in. We're supposed to stand out. I was talking to a, a mom the other day about her young daughter who is to be baptized, not this Sunday, but next, Lord willing, because that is her birthday. And she, she's eight now. I think I have this right. She will be nine uh, on that particular day. And uh, uh, it's a meaningful time for her, and she knows the Lord, this young one, and wants to be baptized 
on that uh, on her birthday, her biological birthday. Well, she was on a school bus recently, her mom told me, and she, one thing led to another, and she was telling her fellow schoolmates about the Lord, about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection. You know what I mean? She was explaining to them Easter and what it's all about, and so on. And they uh, made fun of her. They mocked her. You know how kids could do this? And uh, it was hurtful to her. But I thought, oh, my heavens, I have such respect for that soon-to-be nine-year-old. She was not being conformed to this world. She refused to embrace their values system. She accepts the fact that Jesus is not a way, but the way, the only way. And she was uh, unashamed to declare that appropriately and, uh, as the opportunity presented itself to her classmates. And then she took it on the chin and you say, well, it shouldn't happen that way. But that's, no, 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 that's not true. We're not going to fit in. I don't know if you knew that. We're supposed to be different. Salt and light, we're supposed to stand out as that young girl did. Folks, when Christian people too closely identify with the culture they're in, it seems to me, we put the gospel message with which we have been entrusted at risk. So when we are just liked a whole lot, because we're embracing all of the ways of the world, recreational and otherwise, uh, we compromise the message. Folks see us to be absolutely the same. We're on such a quest to be accepted that our message is being rejected because we look like everybody else. If they're having a glass of wine, we're having a glass of wine. If they're at this crazy movie with uh, very uh, explicit... Uh, Sexual scenes, we're sitting right next to them. For crying out loud, we, we engage in the same kind of coarse humor and all the rest. And, and you know, we want to fit in, I suppose. But, but, but the Lord Jesus didn't. The last time I checked, they crucified him. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the image. It doesn't mean you have to be a weirdo. Nobody is saying that. But we've been entrusted with distinct Biblical truth, and it is going to set us apart. We shouldn't be on such a fierce quest to fit in. We're called to be different. We're to stand in this society as salt and light in our culture, enlightening and purifying it, not being conformed to it. Hence, Paul says what he does. He said, don't conform to the values of the day. Can I share with you a few of the values of the day? Think about this. Tell me if you agree. I think one of the premier values of this age is humanism. What is that? Just what it says. It's a focus on humans. <laughs> humanism makes mankind the center of it all. So the purpose of life is our happiness, uh, our um, virtue, nobility, dignity, goodness, rights, my heavens, this is a rights-oriented, not a responsibility-oriented society, but a rights-oriented society. Humanism means that uh, the value system of the world focuses on our ability to, 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 to do, to bring into existence, to dream, even to speak into existence, as only God can. Anything we want to. And sadly, unfortunately, humanism has crept into a number of our churches. 
where the emphasis there is not following the Lord and not looking to him as creator, God who can change our reality, but on us. Just confess what you want to happen. You have the same creative power in your words as God does. That's the teaching. See, that's humanism. That's absolutely you. Think, think, just think, just imagine, visualize, that's the word, visualize the outcome you want, and God will be obligated to, to give it to you. See, that's, that's, that's human. Remember, the scriptures say pray. <laughs> the scriptures say ask the Father and accept what his answer is. You see what I mean? So, so humanism is a, is a, you know what it is? It's an attempt in a being man-centered to give man glory so that you don't have to be God-centered and give God the glory. So that's kind of what humanism uh, is, and it has infiltrated our day. And so um, it isn't the Savior who needs to save us. You know, have you ever shared your life in Christ with someone, and they smile, you know, and they're listening to you, but you just sense they don't sense their need for a Savior? Uh, that's because at that point, th they don't sense their need for a Savior. They think humankind, through its wit and wisdom, can resolve all the problems that humankind itself has created. And so what humanism does is to deny the fundamental problem of humankind. You know what it is? Sin. <laughs> humanism denies that. So there is no sin in humanism. People just make mistakes. They made a mistake. You know what I mean? So if you deny the fundamental human problem, sin, then you see no need for a savior. And that's what humanism is all about. Man is noble and he has unlimited potential and he can accomplish anything. You know, you hear these things, um, believe in yourself. That's humanism. That's, that's a religious experience. Believe in yourself. Or how about this one? You can be anything you set your mind on. You can be anything you want to be. Is that true? That's not true. Let me give you 15 seconds. Think. Go into your fantasy world. Think about, think about what you would really want to be. And then, and, and then think about whether that's... I'll give you 15 seconds. Whether you could actually be that just by thinking about it. Okay? Here, I, I'm taking some time. I was thinking about being an NBA basketball player. Yeah. And uh, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. Even if I think about it like a lot. Even if I get two or three of you to agree with me. I don't think that's going to pull it off. But, the, but you, see, you see, humanism plays into mind power. Not the power of a beneficent Savior to give us what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see what I mean? So that's humanism. It's one of the values of the day. It's expressed in this statement. We can do it. Join hands across the world. Visualize world peace. We have no sin and therefore need no Savior. We can save ourselves and our world. That's a statement by the American Humanist society. You see what I mean? So humanism is one of the values of the day.
Here's the second, and this is to be rejected. Paul says, don't be conformed. Rejoice in the fact that you're needy, dependent on Almighty God. Thank him that he's your heavenly father who loves to be dependent on because he loves being a dad. So a second value of the day, Paul says, I think, uh, to reject is something called relativism. First humanism, then relativism. So absolutism says some things are absolutely true. Relativism says, no, there are no absolute truths. So that something may be true for you does not make it true for me. So if you're saying Jesus is the way for you, wonderful. But don't bother me. There are many paths to God. See, that's what relativism says. There isn't an absolute path. So when Christians make the claim, Jesus is the way for me, no problem. When Christians make the claim, Jesus is the only way for everybody, look out. And this tolerance-oriented society will quickly rear its ugly head and show you how intolerant it is when you declare the absolute truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to be joined to Almighty God. So relativism is one of the attitudes of the day, and there will be increased effort, it seems to me, to get Christians to stop preaching that Jesus is the only way. Increasing efforts. We're already seeing them. Folks, the age in which we live will tolerate just about everything except those who claim there are absolute truths, you see. So Paul says, it seems to me, you better reject the world's value of relativism, of humanism. How about this? Pragmatism. Pragmatism says, don't bother me with truth. I just want to know if stuff works for me. If something makes me happy, don't confuse me with the facts. I really don't care to hear your moralistic, ethical preaching. Doing this makes me feel better. It has practical, utilitarian, pragmatic value. You see what I mean? So this relationship with that person which you as a Christian, tell me, is displeasing to God. It's irrelevant to me. It works for me. So that's the attitude of the day. If it makes you feel good, then it must be right. You see what I mean? Pragmatism. But that's not right. We can't do pragmatic things. We have to do Truthful things, things that emanate from God's truth. So there's humanism, relativism, pragmatism. One more, environmentalism. Environmentalism. Now, it seems to me everybody ought to be a good steward of the natural resources God has supernaturally bequeathed to us. And it may be that Christians in particular ought to be better stewards of the environment than anybody else. I got that. But the environmental movement is not calling us simply to care for the environment. It's calling us to worship the environment. No longer Father God, but Mother Earth. No longer the creator of it all, 
But the creation, the created thing, is to be worshipped. So environmentalism also denies our fundamental human problem, which is on the inside, an inclination to sin, and they've distracted us from the real problem and redirected our, our, our perception to what's outside. Take care of trees, you know, and plants, and don't use too much water, whatever the deal is. The problem is external. It's not in us any longer, and you don't need to be changed on the inside. It's, the, it's not the internal environment which is the real problem. It's the external environment. Once we change the external, you know, get rid of SUVs or whatever the deal is, who knows what, recycle. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but for crying out loud, what a grand satanic distraction from the real issue of the day. It's not what's out there that defiles me. It's what's inside that's the real, you know, the heart is desperately wicked, the Bible says. So environmentalism would have us redirect our interests from where they really should lie to simply changing external things. And it's amazing to me to see how the world community is on this environmental bandwagon. Of course, Hollywood folks just love this kind of deal, you know. But, but the world is into this, you know, going green. This whole new vocabulary that has developed. It's a new religion. Environmentalism is a religion, it seems to me. It's worship of Mother Earth rather than Father God. Can I tell you, Mother Earth is um, a thing. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the earth, the cosmos, it, it, it doesn't have personality, as does the creator. And, and that's what Romans in the first chapter said. Instead of worshiping Almighty God, they worshiped the thing. They became foolish in their speculations and worshiped what was created instead of the creator. So those are four values of the day, humanism, relativism, pragmatism, and environmentalism that Paul, it seems to me, has in mind when he says, do not be conformed to the world. Reject that kind of mindset. But it's not enough just to reject what the world is about. Uh, We have to, in addition, we have to live out the values of the Bible in the sight of the people of the world. We can't just go on a negative track. We can't condemn all that needs to be condemned. We have to live out the biblical value system so that people now living the value system of this day will see it's better. We'll see something in us that attracts them, will ask us about the hope that is in us. And so how are we to succeed in doing that? We have to be changed. So the text goes on to say, be transformed. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. And please don't miss something which is very important. See how it says, be transformed? It does not say, transform yourselves, does it? It says, be transformed. In the original language, that's called a passive imperative. It's not a Greek class, but I think you'll like this. Since it's passive, it means let something act upon you. You're not the primary actor in this scenario. It's an imperative, not a suggestion. Imperative means like a mandate, a command. You must let yourself be transformed. 
That's the sense of what's going on. I must tell you, that's a relief. If it simply said, transform yourself, how are we going to do that? I don't have the strength to change my thinking. Neither do you. I can't change my worldview, values, and perceptions. I need, I need outside help. And it is implied here in this phrase, be transformed, that there is outside help. Who does it come from? The Spirit of God who has come from the outside to take up his abode on the inside. Folks, when someone accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit comes to indwell them. And he, the Holy... No, I didn't say it. No, no. He, the Holy Spirit, begins to affect the change from the inside out. He changes our mind, our thinking. You know, if you're a Christian, this has happened to you, hasn't it? Does it happen overnight? Nah, I wish it did. It does. You see where it says be transformed? Another Greek thing. That's present tense. In Greek, that means it's supposed to happen all the time. Continuous action. It means it's not something that's done and then it's over with. It means this is your lifestyle now. You must uh, so allow the Holy Spirit of God in you to work that he daily, gradually, progressively is changing your thinking about life. You are to let him. Don't quench him. Don't disobey him. Follow him. Listen to his proddings and all the rest. Do that which is pleasing to him. You will find daily your whole thinking on things is changed. But it's not overnight. I was talking to my friend Greg. Uh, Greg, uh, three years ago, yesterday, was baptized. No, we weren't here three years. It was in another place. It was in the old building. Was baptized by Wade, Brother Wade, three years ago. Also yesterday uh, was uh, Greg's birthday as well. So happy birthday to you. But Greg was saying, you know, even though that took place three years ago and I'm an entirely different person, I still feel like a baby. Is that, did I say, Greg, this is going to teach you to share things with me ever, because it's, now the whole world knows. But I thought it was just a wonderful deal. This is a committed Christian, a devoted guy. Three years of walking with the Lord, he said, but I still feel like a baby. That's true. See, it's a progressive. It's over. Listen, in an instant, we're justified. The highest judge, almighty God, says, case dismissed when we accept the Lord Jesus who suffered and died for us. But that begins a process of becoming more like him. That's a daily kind of process, and, 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 and that's what Paul is talking about here. Be daily being in the process of letting the Holy Spirit transform your thinking. How? Uh, the text says, by the renewing of your mind. Ah, the mind. That's where it all begins. Uh, behaviors, feelings, all emanate from our thinking. Thinking drives what we do. Thinking drives what we believe. Thinking drives what we feel. And, and, and so this text is, is going right to the heart of the matter. Let God's Spirit in you transform you, change you from the inside out. And this takes place by the renewing of your mind. We know what the world has in mind for us. We spoke about it a little bit. But we have to come to know uh, even more importantly, what God has in mind for us. There's much pressure put upon us to conform 
to the world's way of thinking, but God has not left us without resources to defend ourselves against it. He has placed his very spirit in us to help us to change from the inside out. And so our job is to let the Holy Spirit be strong on our behalf. And you know what it takes for the Holy Spirit to be strong in us? He has to be well fed. And you know what the Spirit of God loves to digest? The Word of God. God takes the Spirit of God fed the Word of God, and helps to keep us men and women of God. So that leads me to this. Um, I do this every year. I'll keep doing it until I get it right. Um, this is a goofy handout that perhaps you received when you came in. And if not, not to worry. Help yourself to one or more on the way out. It's a plan to read the Bible. In a year? No. Whenever you want to. Why not in a year? Well, because a lot of us are just not going to do it. <laughs> you know, we're going to make a New Year's resolution uh, to read through the whole Bible, and a small percentage of us are, are going to do it, and the rest of us are not, and then we're going to feel really, really guilty, and we're not going to read the Bible ever again. So a better way to do it, maybe this is just for me, but perhaps for one or, or two of you as well, is to look at this little sheet, you can fold it, and you could put it on the inside cover of your Bible. It starts with Genesis. You can see it, especially if you have eyeglasses. It's small, I know. From Genesis, you'll see the first box. It has a number one. And if you follow all the way across, it'll take you to the end of Genesis. Uh, on the next line, Genesis 50. So there's one box for every chapter of every book in the Bible. So if you got up tomorrow and decided to read Genesis chapter 1, that's wonderful. Then you could X out that box, or you could color code it, whatever you'd like. And then you could see yourself making progress as you see more boxes filled in. So this is a plan for success, not for failure. It's not time limited. You don't have to finish at any particular time. It's the direction you go in, not the speed. What if you want to read two chapters on a day? I think you could do that. But my recommendation would be that you choose any of these 66 books of the Bible and start it at the beginning and stay with it until the end. So don't read Genesis 3 and then skip to Micah 5 or whatever. Because, because that won't give you the flow of the books of the Bible. And God gave us the books of the Bible with beginning, middle, and end. You see what I mean? So whatever book you choose, just stay with it. Let's say you choose Genesis, and you stay with it. Let's say you read one chapter a day, 50. Ooh, what if you miss a day? Not to worry. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Just pick up the next day. So the next day you pick up where you left off. When you finish all of Genesis, then maybe you want to hop on over into the New Testament. There are four stories of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I, I try not to read them in order because I want to spread them out over time. So after Genesis, maybe I'll read Matthew, but then I won't go right into Mark. 
I'll read something entirely different before I go to one of the other Gospels because I want to be reflecting on the life of Christ throughout the year. What about the Psalms? There are 150. So if you want to start at Psalm 1 and do all 150 in order, fine, no rules or anything like that. I just want to make a suggestion. I don't do that. I will, let's say I do Genesis and finish Genesis. I may read then five or six Psalms, and I'll check them off. Then after the Psalms, I'll pop into another book of the Bible. Maybe it's First Thessalonians. When I finish, I think there are four chapters there. I don't remember. When I finish First Thess, I may go back to the Psalms, pick up and read another five. That way I can spread the Psalms also across the year as well. So I could put this in my Bible. You see what I mean? And when I get a chance to read. Now, now Bible reading is not Bible study. You know what I mean? So when you read, you don't want to do it like we're doing on Wednesday nights. Please don't follow my bad example. So if you are in Romans 12, you want to read all of Romans 12. Don't get bogged down like I am in Romans 12, verse 2. That's Bible study. Bible reading is a survey of the land. Get a survey of the land. Why? Even though when you read, you surely don't understand all things, God is, remember, you're not the key player. His spirit in you is. God is helping you to be transformed by being exposed to what he values, what he thinks. And even though you think you're not making progress, I'm telling you, little by little, God is using the word of God, the spirit of God, to help you to think like a man or a woman of God. So please make use of this. Now, uh, our pastor has come up with a great idea. I don't know if he's going to talk with us about it tonight. Uh, 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 I think he's mentioned it to a number of us already and will again. Um, you know, the fact that we serve a risen Savior makes all the difference in the world. Our hope is in vain, isn't it, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead? And because that's so important, the fact that, that, that God is living, uh, the, the Bible, Old and New Testament, has so much to say. So our pastor is recommending that anyone who wishes to, maybe whole families, uh, take a Bible and mark it, uh, every verse, highlight every single verse that uh, reminds you of the fact that God is alive. So for instance, if it says, and God said, <gasps> well, a, a, a God who's still in the grave <laughs> can't speak. So that's an indication of life, a communicating God is a living God. So you want to underline that. And uh, there are special markers that are going to be made available, special Bibles. And then, this is like long-range planning, but I think it, it's worth mentioning, on March 29th for a week, uh, culminating on April 4th, there's going to be a wonderful, well, a wonderful opportunity for us and believers in the community all around to be awakened, to be encouraged, to be recommitted, to be rededicated, to be made alive anew in Christ. Our pastor has termed it a resurrection awakening. I think I got it. A resurrection awakening. And they're going to be some of the... Uh, country's most well-known and effective communicators. 
And of course, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit of God to join with them and all of us as we come. That's March 29th. Specifics will come. But what we want to do is have those Bibles that you've marked and give them away. And tell someone who maybe comes on that night, makes a decision for the Lord Jesus, here's something for you. It's a gift. These are words of life from a living Savior who you have just come to know. And to make it easy for you, we have highlighted every possible verse we could find that tells us about the fact that he's alive. He's alive for you regardless of what your life situation is. So... Uh, you may want to do that as your Bible reading plan this year. As you use this and cross off Genesis chapter 1, you might also want to, as you're doing it, highlight every verse in Genesis 1 that has to do with the living Savior. More information will come, but please consider doing that. I think our pastor would like for hundreds and hundreds of our church uh, members and visitors to partake in this. Can you imagine what a blessing it would be uh, for each of us to focus on that one theme as we read the scriptures, the fact that God is alive. So I close with this. Jeremiah, one of my peeps, Jeremiah said uh, way back when in chapter 15, I think it is verse 16, he said, thy words were found. We don't have to look far, do we? We have the Bible and so many wonderful translations available to us. Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I ate them, figure of speech, but meaningful. He chewed on it. He digested it. Thy words were found, and I ate them. And then what happened is this. He said, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. The implication is that wasn't always the case. But as he began to chew on God's word, he developed a taste for it. Do you like artichokes? Yeah, some do. Uh, we'll pray for you. So, so my wife read somewhere, that woman reads too much, that artichokes are good for you. They do all kinds of stuff. Who knows what? And so, so now we're eating artichokes. They are, you really have to develop a taste. For, I mean, I don't care how much you put, you put all kinds of, you know, I put chocolate syrup on it, everything. To flavor it up, it's probably defeating the purpose. But they still taste like artichokes, a good name for it. But I found out the third or fourth time I subjected myself to this pain, I, I, it, it's not as torturous an experience to, 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 to swallow one. I, it's like my taste buds are growing up and developing an affinity for what had hitherto been distasteful. You know, it's kind of like that with the Bible. It's, it's a different culture and the words, and a lot of it is, it is hard to understand. I, I got all that, and for folks like me, I never read the Bible until I started to read the Bible. Uh, it's hard. It was kind of confusing and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I find as I stuck with it over time, like artichokes, I'm, I'm developing a taste for it, and it is good for us. It is, it is nourishment. We, we could succeed in resisting the uh, 
uh, world's interest in conforming us to its image because we have the thinking of the author of the Bible. We weren't, weren't even realizing this. We we're just reading through it, and God's Spirit is being fed on it, and, and we're strengthening Him on the inside of us, and he's, he's changing our thinking, and we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, and the majority is not ruling us anymore. The Savior is ruling us. And so, like Jeremiah, we could say their words were found. I ate them. And they became, they, it wasn't overnight, but they became a joy and the delight of my heart. Then Jeremiah says this, for I have been called by thy name, O Lord, God of hosts. If you are a Christian, you are a Christ one. You've been literally called by the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Jeremiah said, it's only fitting since I'm called by his name to read his word. Could I encourage you to get off to a start? This is the seventh, so this is good. You're not late because remember, no dates, nothing like that. You don't have to start it on January 1st. Put it on the inside of your Bible. You're, you know, you're eating a hamburger at Burger King or something. Do they have artichokes? Oh, yeah, okay. But anyway, you're, 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 and you, and you, so, so you, you open up your Bible and you read a chapter and you cross it out. Then all of a sudden you say, oh my goodness, look at the progress I'm making. I didn't even know Habakkuk was a book in the Bible and I have read it. Look at that. And then you get the mind of Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us and sustaining us. Um, and the way you sustain us spiritually is spiritual food. That's what the Bible is. It's under fire, even by major news magazines. <laughs> but we don't care. Uh, it, it, has, it has ignited a fire in us. It has revealed your mind to us. So we know what you think about the things we have thought wrongly about. May it be true of us what was true of Jeremiah. Thy words were found. We ate them, and they became for us a joy and the delight of our hearts because we're called by your name, Lord Jesus. We are Christians and glad for it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.